What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Welcome to another edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We ask that question every day, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? If you'd like to answer that question, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, sitting in today for Tom Price. Charles Beery is spinning the dials behind the glass, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson, magnificent person, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every day on this program, Dr. David Anders. How in the world are you? Jack, I'm all right. How about you? I'm terrific, thank you very much. Marie... Not so terrific. She's Uh-oh. hoping you can help her. All right. She says, how can I respond to a Quaker's belief that revelation is ongoing while Catholic belief is that revelation ended with the last apostle? Don't we believe that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal the meaning of Scripture and the events of our lives in our prayer? Please help me to understand. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So being Catholic is so wonderful. <laughs> because we have so many helpful distinctions that some of our non-Catholic Christian brothers lack in their theological apparatus, and they are distinctions that bring clarity to our lives, to our thinking, and 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 just make it easier to be a Christian, right? So I'm just so grateful for Catholic doctrine. Here's one of the places where Catholic doctrine is just immensely helpful. Before I was Catholic, I never heard this distinction. I, I grew up in an evangelical Protestant home. I went to seminary. I went to Christian college, I studied theology, never heard this distinction until I became Catholic. Catholics distinguish what we call public revelation from private revelation. And it is the key distinction. Public revelation, it's what is spoken about in the book of Hebrews, when the, the sacred writer says that in the past God spoke to our forefathers in various ways, through the prophets and this and other things, but now in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son, who is the definitive revelation. And St. Peter says in his epistle that in, in the promises of Christ, we have all we need, underscore all we need. Did you get that one? All we need for life and godliness. So everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us in the definitive self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So there is something unique, normative, authoritative, and final about what Christ taught. When Christ sent the apostles out, he said, go make disciples of all nations, teach them everything I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Notice what he says. Teach what I commanded, and I'll be with you. So there's a promise of divine assistance, a promise of the Spirit's help in the life of the church, but to do what? To teach what Christ commanded. And those things that Christ commanded, that he lived, that he exemplified, 
or what we call the deposit of faith. So the deposit of faith doesn't change. You don't add to the deposit of faith. Uh, it's, it's inviolable. You can't revoke it. Uh, it it's permanent. Uh, but in the living out of the of the teaching of that deposit of faith, the, of course, the church relies on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so the magisterium of the church, let's say the person of the Pope in particular, uh, is always making judgment calls about, you know, like when to press on a particular issue. When When is an authoritative intervention necessary? When to clarify a disputed point? We trust that the Holy Spirit is working that ongoing work of discernment on the part of the teachers of the faith, but so they can bring clarity to that deposit of faith. Now, I should also add, the psalmist writes that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? That, that there is a sense in which there is the revelation of the natural world, those things that are available to us through reason, um, that are in no way constrained by the uniqueness of the deposit of faith. So, you know, let's say if somebody makes a discovery tomorrow for the cure of some disease— well, you know, the body of human knowledge has just expanded. Something has been revealed to us through our own ingenuity, you know, aided by the Spirit of God, of course. Um, and, uh, and that could become authoritative in, say, the domain of medical care. And, and we recognize that as Catholics. And sometimes we integrate what we learn from natural reason, natural science, philosophical reflection. That can be integrated into our understanding of our lives as Catholics, again, without threatening the uniqueness of the deposit of Christ. Uh, can the Holy Spirit speak to individuals in their consciences, or even in extraordinary ways, like visions or dreams or th things of that sort? Sure he can. Absolutely. That, that can happen. Saints have claimed these kinds of events in their lives. But nothing that comes by way of private revelation can ever contradict or add to the deposit of faith. Um, Robert would like to know, what do you mean by saying that, quote-unquote, God is simple? Uh, not divisible into parts. Not divisible into parts. Uh, and the reason, there's a very specific reason why Catholic philosophy has taken that position, because something that is in principle divisible, um, a composite, is composite in virtue of something else. Right? I mean, I, I, don't, I know nothing about chemistry, so I'm not going to make a fool of myself, but when you take, like, um, you know, hydrogen and oxygen and you combine them to make water, well... There, there, there's something in virtue of which those two elements get combined, right? Something outside the molecule itself that explains that composition. If you have a composite, it can't be the first cause. It can't be the ultimate principle. And so what we mean by God, just whatever is the first principle, that's, whatever that is, and honestly, as, as Catholics, we don't think we know the essence of God. We don't claim to know the essence of God. We believe that there is a first principle, whatever it is, however it's conceived, and that's God. But since it's first, it can't be second. And thus we say God is metaphysically simple. Very good. If you'd like to be part of the program, we'd love to have you join us. We ask that question every day. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? The number to be on the program, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Ann in Covington, Kentucky, and we've got plenty of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. First up today is Anne. She is in Covington, Kentucky, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Anne, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Dr. Anders, I think your program is the best. Your answers are comprehensible and thorough. But having said that, I want to offer a comment on the use of blessed blessed objects. I sell used religious items, statues, rosaries, cards, etc., in an antique mall. And I was told in grade school some 80 years ago that when objects are sold, when blessed objects are sold, they lose their blessings. So I just had to comment on that. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, there is a provision in canon law that forbids the sale of relics. Specifically, relics cannot be sold. So I hope you're not carrying relics. Uh, not first-class relics, at any rate. Uh, when it comes to things like, you know, if you some somebody's grandmother's rosary that they maybe put up for sale and it was blessed by a priest, you know, back in 1939 or whatever— I am not aware of anything in Catholic teaching that would say that in virtue of having been sold, it would lose its blessing. I, that, that that doesn't make sense to me theologically. Um, now, I, I will say that when we, if one is to sell a blessed object, a sacramental like a rosary that's, that's not a relic, um, one cannot sell the blessing per se. Like, you can't market it as, here, come buy your blessing. That would be, that would be the sin and the crime of simony. Um, but the object as such could be sold, and I'm not aware of anything that would make it stop being a blessed item. In could you make the statement that it is blessed? Um, so again, I'm not a I'm not a church lawyer. I don't I don't know of anything that would prevent you from doing that. Uh, but you can't, especially you can't, if it was by a notable figure. Right, right. But you can't sell it. You you can't sell it in the promise that you are purchasing a blessing. Right. Does that help, Ann, or does it muddy the waters? Thank you very much. No, that's fine. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Daniel's in Castle Rock, Colorado. He's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Daniel, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thank you, guys. Hey, Dr. Anders. Got a quick question for you. Uh, I've heard the names Tertullian, Origen, uh, tossed around in discussion of the Church Fathers, but they're not saints. Can you tell me why? Um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So, uh, well, they don't, they're not, they don't fall into the same category. So Tertullian actually left the Church before he died. So he did not die a Catholic, and that's kind of a deal-breaker for being canonized if you don't die within the Church. Um, and uh, Origen was an immensely popular writer and theologian in his own day and immediately afterwards. So many of the Cappadocian fathers and St. Ambrose, for example, were just really gaga about origin. They thought he was the bomb. Uh, but he, he had teachings that were controversial, um, some of which, and it depends on which scholars you ask about this, 
uh, may have been condemned at a subsequent council. And this debate about whether Origen's actual theses were, were, were condemned or not, but he at least fell under a cloud. And Origen had a couple of beliefs that, that were really controversial. One of them is definitely incorrect. It's erroneous. It's the theory of apocatastasis, which is the doctrine that, that all sentient beings will be saved, including the fallen angels. So Origen had a place for the devil in heaven, and that, that's been ruled out by the church. Um, you know, Origen's doctrine of the Trinity was subordinationist. He, he, of course, he lived before the Council of Nicaea, and so he was regarded as orthodox in his own day. But after Nicaea, his, uh, his Trinitarian theology was somewhat suspect. Uh, he had a few other positions as well that were suspect. But in other respects, Origen had a tremendous influence on the life of the church. Origen's work on biblical hermeneutics pretty much became canon. And, and, and you can find it reflected in the Catechism of the Catholic Church today. So he's an enormously influential person and, and a very important thinker and a, and a profound influence in the course of Catholic theology. And he died very much a churchman, very much within the life of the Church. So uh, the, the more you go to the East, uh, the more Origen is viewed highly, and you will find people who would refer to him as a doctor and maybe even a saint. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, in the Western half of the Church, he's typically not regarded that way, but he's respected. What's what's the name of his error again? Apocatastasis. You know, I waited like five years to be able to use that term on Catholic <laughs> radio. When I finally got to the first time, I was like, "Oh, fantastic! I finally got to say apocatastasis." I'm 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 pretty happy to be here myself today anyway. for that very reason. God bless you. We thank you for that phone call today. That opens up a line for you at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. Give us a call with your question at 833-288-3986. Brandon is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's listening on the EWTN app today. Brandon, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hello. Uh, I, I just had a question. I, I've been hearing a little bit about the synod that happened uh, this past Saturday that, that, that just got through getting wrapped up. And they were talking about homosexuality and same-sex marriages and blessings and whatnot. I just, my question is, if, if, if the Pope made a decision to say, oh, we're going to, we're going to make a decision that homosexuality is not a sin and then, and that same-sex marriages can happen in the, in the Catholic Church and, oh, and we're going to do, we're going to have female priests. Can a pope be let let out of office or fired for making? I, I appreciate claims? the question. I sure do. Thank you so much. So, first of all, I want to say something about the synod because this doesn't surprise me. But the, the but the spin on the synod has been so bad, so tendentious, uh, so ideologically divisive, and so misinformed that unfortunately people are walking away with these kinds of ideas, and there is absolutely no basis in them whatsoever at all, right? So, I mean, the Pope has said specifically on the two questions that you raised, uh, that, uh, that, 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 that marriage is an indissoluble union of a man and a woman, intrinsically open to, uh, in principle, open to life, uh, fidelity, the traditional understanding of marriage, in other words, and that nothing else can be called a marriage, and that it's more than an ideal, it's a norm for, for human sexuality, and, and you can't bless uh, anything else, any other kind of sexual union, 
uh, to give the impression that it is that it is marriage. I mean, he's been emphatically clear on that issue. So there's no change in the church's teaching on human sexuality. Um, he's also slammed the door repeatedly on the question of women priests, as as did John Paul II before him and Pope Paul VI before him and 2,000 years of Catholic tradition before them. So there is no danger of this pope or this synod or, or, or any other ecclesial body changing Catholic doctrine. It's not going to happen. Now, um, there is there are always... Uh, people in the church who will who will attempt to construe what popes and councils have said in accord with their own ideological agenda. So I don't doubt for a second that someone somewhere in the Catholic Church will walk away from the Synod and say, well, I now have authorization to do blah, 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 whatever it might be, and they'll go off and do their crazy thing. But it won't be the teaching of the pope that leads them. That will be their own tendentious reasoning that leads them to that position. Uh, on the substantive question of can a pope be fired, well, you can't fire a pope because the pope is the court of highest appeal, and he answers to no one. He's he's judged by no one. Um, and uh, we've uh, we've At never least had no one a, on earth. No one on earth, right? We've never had a case um, of a, a pope who was a formal heretic, right, to to test this on. And so theologians have asked the question: Could you have a pope who was formally a heretic? And a, a very common opinion on that question uh, by a, a authoritative theologian, St. Robert Bellarmine, is that if you ever had a pope who actually was formally a heretic, that he would stop being a Catholic in virtue of being formally a heretic. And, you know, you have to be Catholic to be pope. Um, now, you know, who would pass the judgment of formal heresy? That's a different question. But, uh, but so far, we haven't had that problem. Now, we have had situations in the church where we had popes that were if not formal heretics, they were at least wrong on a theological issue. Um, uh, a, a really pertinent example would be the case of John the Twenty Second. John the Twenty Second was a medieval pope who denied that the souls of the just experienced the beatific vision upon death. He he thought they had to wait until the second coming of Christ for the beatific vision. So he had his position had some affinity with the idea of soul sleep, um, and. Uh, at that time, it, the you know the, the the sort of universal ordinary magisterium of the church—that's to say, the common teaching, of the Catholic faith, and the sense of the faithful for centuries—had been that that was that position was incorrect, but it had never been formally defined. Um, and so many theologians of the day said to the Pope, uh, "You're way out in left field here, Pope. You need to you need to bring it back in line." And before he died, he did. He said, uh, "Yeah, I was probably wrong about that. Sorry, guys. Hey, don't worry. I never taught it authoritatively anyway." Um, and then after he died, the next pope, who was Benedict XII, issued a papal bull uh, and infallibly taught the dogma that the just do, in fact, see the vision of God upon death. So he, you know, put the nail in that coffin, so to speak. Uh, we've had a few other instances in history where popes were a bit weak-kneed about teaching the full Catholic position on a particular doctrine, and so they've been kind of looked at askance at through, uh, you know, uh, in retrospect in history. And all of those borderline cases were very much at the forefront at the Fathers of Vatican I, when they formulated the doctrine of papal infallibility, they did it fully aware that there had been people like John XXII in history. And so if you read the definition, it's very clear that the Pope's infallibility comes into play only under very limited circumstances, and that infallibility doesn't prevent the Pope from making errors as a private theologian. 
833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Sandy is a first-time caller in Toledo, Ohio, listening to our wonderful affiliate there, Annunciation Radio. Sandy, welcome to the program. You're on with Dr. Andrews. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Anders, I would like to know, I say the rosary, the joyful mysteries, and I come to the presentation, and I really, I know it's according to the law of Moses, but I don't know what it, what it is. I guess I'd like a little bit more fuller understanding of the presentation. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So uh, in, in Hebrew law, when uh, the firstborn son that was born to a family had to be redeemed uh, through the making of an offering in the temple. What is the logic of that sacrifice of redemption? That, to be honest with you, I think is a matter of speculation among biblical scholars, but the important thing is that there was a provision whereby sacrifice had to be made. And so Mary and Joseph were compliant with the Mosaic law. They went to the temple, they made the sacrifice. There's a lot there, though. Oh yeah, you've got Simeon, you've got Anna, you've got Mary's obedience. There's there's a lot to dive into. There's there a lot to dive into, but in terms of the, in terms of yeah. the logic of the Hebrew sacrifice, uh, you know, the, the thing about the if you've ever read uh, the Pentateuch and you read about all these sacrifices that are that are imposed, none of them come with a theological explanation attached. It just <laughs> says when you make a sin offering, do this. You get the description of the offering but not a lot of speculation about its significance. These are a stiff-necked people, David yep. Anders. Um, 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Kevin sent us an email. He said, The first beatitude states, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't poor in spirit mean those with little faith? Thank you. I appreciate the question. So in the history of Catholic commentary upon that verse, that has never been the interpretation that Catholics have put upon that verse. It usually means something along the line of humble, um, you know, taking the least place, uh, but, not, but, not, uh, but not weak in faith, no. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Brian is another first-time caller in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Brian, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anders. I've listened to you for a long time. Uh, it's a real great honor to get to speak with you. Um, I had a question about <clears throat> indulgences. Um, I know that there are plenary and there are uh, partial, and I, I wondered um, what is meant by plenary. Does it mean that all punishment is removed uh, for for the sinner when they're in purgatory so that their soul would be released to heaven? Yep, thank you. I appreciate the question. So let's before I answer the question, let's let's do a little review on indulgences, okay? Um, I find that helpful. So the logic of an indulgence, let me tell you the history of the, of the practice. Uh, when I learned this, it really opened my eyes about the, how they make sense within the Church's theology. In, uh, in the mid-3rd century, there was a massive persecution against Christians uh, promulgated by the Emperor Decius, the Decian persecution. And many Christians were put to death, and some were imprisoned. And some caved, some renounced their faith under, under the threat of persecution. And those that apostatized were uh, excommunicated, 
and they were to be readmitted to the church only after a very lengthy penance, and those penances could last for years and years and years. Uh, but there were some people who were in prison. They were called confessors. They hadn't been martyred, but they were still in prison, suffering under the persecution. And, of course, the church regarded them as highly meritorious, very praiseworthy in their constancy. Some of the people that had penances of, you know, 30 years or 20 years, some incredible length of time, got a brilliant idea. They said, well, you know, Brother John is over here in jail, and the church thinks he's the hot stuff. I wonder if, uh, if John interceded on my behalf with the bishop, if he'd be willing to cut down a little bit on this 30-year exclusion from the Eucharist. Now hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it after the break. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. We're talking to Brian in Columbus, Ohio, about indulgences. Yeah, thanks. So before the break, I was kind of laying out the origin of the practice, and it comes to us from the third century, during the Decian persecution, when Christians who had denied their faith and were forced to do lengthy penance before they could be readmitted to the Eucharist, were approaching. Christians that were languishing in prison who had not given up the faith, they were called confessors, because the church regarded those particular Christians as very meritorious, and saying, would you intercede for me, uh, and could I apply some of the merit you have acquired to the temporal punishment that I have to pay so that we could remit some of that and let your time in prison sort of count for me? And if you think about the logic of that, it's very biblical. I mean, Scripture it, it, all the time deals with this, you know, the God showing favor to the many on account of the righteousness of the few, or sometimes God punishing the many on account of the wickedness of a few. It's a very biblical idea. And so they, they took this to the church, and Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage at the time, said, yep, yep, I see the logic. The logic is biblical, makes sense. My only request is, my only demand, really, is to do this. We have to keep the distribution of this within the control of the bishop and the church so people don't, you know, run off and start absolving each other of sins. It's got to stay within the church's power of, uh, of jurisprudence. But the idea of this person substituting their merit for that person's demerit, that works. And thus was born the practice of indulgences. And so initially, of course, it was applied to the temporal punishments that the church herself imposed, right, when someone was excluded from communion. But the logic was sound, and so the the realization came, well, this this could also be applied for the penance that people have to perform even after death in purgatory, and hence the practice of, of gaining indulgences on behalf of the souls in purgatory. Now, plenary indulgence is exactly what it sounds like. It was It is an indulgence that would effect, if, if obtained in its fullness— uh, the complete remission of all the temporal punishment due to sin. And there are conditions for obtaining a plenary indulgence. It would be, you know, you have to have no attachment to sin yourself. You have to go to Holy Communion and confession and pray for the intentions of the Holy Father. Um, and the, the tricky one there is, of course, the having no attachment to sin business. Uh, but if acquired genuinely, then it can be applied and it can remit all the temporal punishment due to sin. Now, you know, should we... Should we gain plenty of indulgences? Absolutely, we should do it. It's a it's a it's a pious and good practice. I've I've gained several, or at least I've attempted to gain several. I don't claim to have achieved the total detachment from sin, but I've 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 aimed for plenary indulgences, and 
my two favorite plenary, plenary indulgences I ever got. One, when I was in France, I was in Assisi, Italy, and there was an indulgence you could gain for praying at, uh, at the tomb of St. Francis, and I went for that one. The other one was at the Year of Faith. Pope Benedict granted a plenary indulgence to anyone who would go pray at the site of their baptism. And I was actually baptized in a Presbyterian church in Birmingham that has since been sold to a kind of independent Bible church. So about as far away ecclesiologically as you could get from a Catholic church. And, uh, but it's not far from the home I live in now. And I said, by golly, I'm going to do this thing. And, and so I go over to so-and-so Bible church, wander into the sanctuary one day, and you know they're setting up for some kid's show, and there's people all around hanging banners. And I kneel quietly in the front pew, and I pray and ask God for a plenary indulgence. And you know, eventually somebody wanders over me and asks me who I am and what I'm doing there. And that was a fun conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, so I gained or tried to gain a plenary indulgence. Um, in the church of my baptism. Well, there you have it. Brian, is that helpful for you? And would the soul be released to heaven if you're praying for a particular person? Um, yeah, presumably. Now, you know, again, all of this stands within the judgment and the discretion of God. So, I mean, I think it's best to, to say, when I am obtaining an indulgence or praying for the repose of a soul, I recognize that, you know, I can't compel the hand of God. And, and we have confidence that the thing works, but we don't have the kind of certainty that, well, all I have to do is perform this mechanical action and I'm going to spring somebody from purgatory. We really have to leave that up to God's discretion. You know, the other question that comes up time to time about this particular topic is, is this like hitting the save button on a video game? At this point, if you are to obtain a plenary indulgence for yourself, are you, is the slate wiped clean from that point backward? Never to be visited again? That's a good question. So, you know, I think more to the point, that's what confession is for, right? So you go to confession, you really do get a clean slate, but you still have the obligation to do penance. And and so, you know, just because somebody, if you leave the confessional and get hit by a car, we're still going to say a mass for the repose of your soul, um, even if you've said your penance, because we don't really know, you know, we don't really know how that calculus works out in the divine realm. But it's at least in principle possible you go to confession, say your penance, get hit by the car, and go straight to heaven. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Barbara, another first-time caller in Baltimore, Maryland, watching on EWTN television. Barbara, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What can we do for you? I was wondering, I went to a baptism in a different state, and I thought that the father of the baby never was baptized, so I baptized him, and I was wondering if that's any good. So let me just ask a quick question. I appreciate the call. Thank you. You said you went to attend the, bapti- the, the baptism. When you attended the baptism, was this child baptized by a minister, and then you also baptized the child? Or are you the only person who performed the baptism? I baptized the father of the child. Oh, you baptized the father of the child. Right. Thank you. Um, and uh, so did you did you apply water to his scalp and say the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? I said, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, thank you. According to the teaching of the Catholic Church, that is not a valid baptism. That's not a valid baptism. You have to use the formula that Christ gave us, 
at the end of the book of Matthew, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I would add that while uh, a lay person can, in principle, baptize uh, another person, um, if there is a possibility of the individual seeking baptism being baptized by a minister of Christ's church, that is to say a priest or deacon, that's the way it's supposed to happen. And so lay people should baptize only in cases of emergency, if someone's in danger of death, for example. Or, you know, if you were out in the middle of the desert somewhere and you know there was no priest for 500 miles and no prospect of seeing one for a long time. But uh, barring some kind of emergency situation like that, it really does belong to the, uh, to the jurisdiction of the church to administer the sacraments. God bless you, Barbara. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. You are very approachable today. Another first-time caller, Elizabeth, is in Houston, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Elizabeth, how are things in the Republic? Uh, it's going very long, cold. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do for you? Um, yeah, I just had a question. I would like to know a little bit about the reasoning behind the church's decision to not have female, uh, you know, women in the as priests. Yeah, Very sure. Good. I appreciate the question a lot. So let me say off the bat that I think one of the reasons that people are motivated to seek the ordination of women is they feel palpably the exclusion of women from power and decision-making in the church. And to that complaint, I say, hear, hear, right? And the Pope has said, hear, hear. It is important that women have positions of leadership and power and decision-making and authority within the church uh, because they have gifts, they have charisms, they have perspectives that are very needful. And there's no doubt that the way in practice, the way the male-only priesthood has functioned in practice over the years has often functioned to exclude not only the voices of women, but even of other lay people who have valuable contributions to be made. And when that, when that happens, it's a sin, and it's what the Church calls clericalism. And so there definitely is a culture of clericalism within the Catholic Church that stands in need of correction, and it's something that Pope Francis has railed about repeatedly. And so for his part, one of the things that he's done to ameliorate both that chauvinism and that clericalism is to appoint women to positions of power and influence at the highest levels of the church, positions that women have never held before, right? I mean, that really, really significant appointments that that uh, that never been held by a woman before. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, you're listening right now to the EWTN uh, television and radio network that was founded by a, a female nun, Mother Angelica, who uh, around here we think was a pretty awesome person who exercised a tremendous amount of power and influence, not only as an entrepreneur who, who built a TV and radio station from scratch, but as a leader in world Catholicism, as a prophetic voice that literally ha was heard all around the world, someone who was not afraid to correct uh, bishops uh, to their face and on air, you know, when she thought that they were up to something they shouldn't be up to, um, and, uh, and had no hesitation at all about governing, teaching, ruling, uh, men, uh, other women, and and you know it had a amazing footprint on world Catholicism, and we could we could name so many other women in history who have done that, them similar things. Um, one of my favorite is Catherine of Siena, medieval saint, who when uh, when the Pope was up to no good, she went to Avignon where he was domiciled at the time and really read him the Riot Act, and because of her incredible sanctity and her 
prophetic gifts. She actually kind of brought the Pope to heal, and, and he reformed his ways and listened to her critique. So that kind of role for women in the church, which is power, which is influence, which is teaching, is essential and critical for her health. And I think that the more we can get behind that kind of vision of, of female leadership, the, the less need there will be felt for inserting women into the priesthood specifically. And the failure to do that gives the false impression that the role of a priest is primarily, um, you know, to have his way with the church. And of course, that's, that's a terrible way. The priests are meant to be servants. Uh, they're meant to be like fathers, like a good husband, not an abusive husband, but a good husband, who would lay down his life for the church and for the welfare of his sheep. The more priests uh, lead that way, and the more the structures of the church facilitate that kind of leadership, the better we will all be. But in terms of why there have to be only men in the priesthood, there's a couple reasons for this. One is just a matter of divine revelation. So Christ himself appointed only male disciples, and the pattern of ordination for 2,000 years in the church has always been men only. And you don't, I mean, one of the principles of Catholic theology is that when something has been taught or done always, everywhere, and by all, that's a, that's a pretty powerful message that this is part of the deposit of faith and can't be changed. And so a lot of things get debated in Catholic history. This is one that never got debated until, say, the 20th century. So it's pretty long-standing practice, so, and, and seems to have the weight and sanction of Jesus himself behind it. So that's, that's one powerful reason right there. Um, why is that? Well, Scripture tells us that Christ exists in relationship to the Church as a husband to a bride. And, of course, God's relationship to the Church is as a father to a, to a child and also a husband to a bride. And that the priest's role in the liturgical community is to function as a kind of alternate Christ. He stands in the place of Jesus. And, uh, and of course, the, the liturgy is where the people of God come together as the bride of Christ to be joined to him. And the priest has that position in the liturgy. And so the parallelism of, of a husband to bride, father to, to, uh, to, to family, is exemplified by the priest's masculinity. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there aren't parallel roles for women in their maternity uh, with respect to the church, and that's essential to her constitution. It's why I think in God's providence, the greatest, uh, most eminent saint in the hierarchy of saints happens to be female. That's the Blessed Virgin Mary. God bless you. We appreciate that phone call today, Elizabeth. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Be sure to join us for Catholic Answers Live Monday through Friday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern right here on EWTN Radio. Cy Kellett takes your calls and talks with some of the leading apologists and theologians in the church today. EWTN is the exclusive radio home for Catholic Answers Live. Next up is Carol, another first-time caller in the great state of Tennessee, listening at EWTN.com. Carol, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Oh, wonderful. <clears throat> Doctor, I'm hoping you can give me some guidance on this problem. Uh, it's blessed objects. I know you've been talking about that a lot. I work in a thrift store. I'm a volunteer in a thrift store. When we get rosaries, we, I, I kind of assume they, well, they might be blessed. And so those I give to the church, and that's fine. But I get a lot of objects. Some of them are very attractive, things you'd hang on a wall, a crucifix or such. 
tattoos. I don't know whether these are blessed or not, but we're in the business to sell things. Can we sell them? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with these? Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, I, I think you can sell them. I think if, you are, if they're given to a thrift store, the thrift stores exist for, for the sake of the poor, and and you know if, if people are going to take these into their homes and use them for their own um, uh, for their own edification, that that's a that's a worthy goal. And you're not you're not you're not representing them as blessed and, and as if you were selling a blessing. Uh, you're selling a devotional item, and that's that's acceptable. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's our toll free number. Next up is Jacob in the great state of Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Jacob, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, how's it going? Can you guys hear me all right? Yeah. All right. Um, I was just calling. I had called a couple weeks ago, and I was just calling because I I had heard an argument from a friend of mine that they were saying that the Catholic Church kind of fell into this. Um, like middle ground where modern Christianity, if you want to call it that, and the old Jewish traditions, and it was a transitional period for um, people who weren't quite comfortable with what we would say is modern Christianity today, with, you know, how, I guess, um, there's not really any tradition, and it's very simplistic, and you're coming from the Jewish tradition where there was a lot of legalism, and it was very, this is what you have to do, step A to Z, and I was just wondering what your opinion on that. Thank you. I, I think that is one of the most historically naive, chauvinistic, presentist, uh, and bigoted interpretations of Judaism, Catholicism, and world Christianity that I have ever heard. So I'm not a fan at all of the way that your friend has characterized it. First of all, it's, it's, it, it's totally unfair to Judaism. It's completely unfair to Judaism. And all the modern scholarship on Second Temple Judaism has undercut the idea that Judaism is this sort of uh, terribly legalistic, works righteousness, sort of, you know, neurotic religion. Um, and that, that, that's, that, that is not historically accurate. That's a, that, is a, that is a prejudicial interpretation of the Jewish tradition. Um, uh, the idea that um, that what Catholicism inherited from Judaism is a kind of watered-down traditionalism and legalism is, of course, a terrible characterization of Catholicism and would not at all be true to the way 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century Catholics saw themselves, either in relationship to the Old Covenant, to the Jews, uh, to pagans, or understood their own religious practice. Catholicism is the religion of devotion to the person of Jesus Christ. And it is the religion that believes that Christ is the way to God and that he is the way to God first by way of atonement, that he sacrificed his life for ours, that he might win for us the merit of grace, that we could transform our lives and our relationship to God, that he is the way to us by way of example, that he is the perfect example of, of humanity and its ethical life and strivings and its relationship to the divinity. Um, that his teachings are perfect and complete and that adherence to them, and in particular something like the Sermon on the Mount, that outlines the renovation of the interior life is the perfect way to live as a human being, that we be poor in spirit and seek peace and purity of heart and all of the rest of it. And Catholicism is the religion that has given itself entirely to the pursuit of God following the example of Jesus Christ. And um, uh, that can take shape in many different kinds of, of legal regimes, if you will. So as churches throughout history have constructed laws for themselves and practices for their faithful, uh, Catholicism is infinitely malleable in that dimension, 
right? It, it doesn't believe that there is a set legal regime or a set devotional practice uh, that is normative. What's normative is the person of Jesus Christ, and, and saints and Catholics vary from one another widely over the centuries in how they live out that devotion to Jesus. So that's a, that's a terrible, terrible construal of, uh, of, of Catholicism. I think it's also a ridiculously narrow and, and, uh, and ignorant construal of whatever this fellow calls modern Christianity, which is allegedly devoid of tradition. Modern Christianity is so just shock full of tradition that you can't you can barely step over a pew without falling over a tradition in so-called modern Christianity. Um, I mean, I can't even believe we're having this conversation. It seems so naive to me. Um, if uh, what churches are growing the most rapidly outside the Catholic sphere in in world Christianity today? Well, in uh, in the Amer- in North America, I think it would be the model of the megachurch, which something like. About 70%, I think, of church-going Protestants now attend one of the so-called megachurches. Have you bothered to ever watch two different services from the so-called megachurch and to regard how ridiculously similar they are in form? I mean, there is a pattern. We, that's In Catholic language, we call that a liturgy. There is a pattern of worship, of, of discourse, of language, of theology, uh, uh, you know, a, a model of conversion, of, uh, of, of pastoral leadership, you name it. Every sort of element of ecclesial life is scripted, you know, down to the letter and literally published in books and handed out. This is how you do church. This is the formula for success. Um, it's so scripted that it, that, that, I mean, it literally is a franchise. We have churches in my home state where there is a kind of a mother church, if you will, that replicates itself across the state in the southeast in cookie-cutter pattern, right? We'll go out and invest in real estate, buy a $10 million building, and import their business model from one place to another and instantly become the biggest show in town. But what is that if not tradition? It's, it's terribly tradition-bound. Now, outside of North America, for, for the 20th century, the fastest-growing segment of the Protestant world was Pentecostalism. Which again, I, it's uh, down to formula. Down to formula. You can you can prescribe the exact form of worship, the way spirituality is going to look, uh, the way language is going to be used, uh, the same theologies are going to reemerge. It's extremely tradition, pattern bound uh, form of Christian life. Now, some of those traditions may be novel; they may be recent in Christian history, uh, which may undermine their it certainly undermines their claim to authenticity or any kind of continuity to Christ or the apostles. But that they are human traditions is undeniable. Next stop is Omaha, Nebraska. Janet is listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Janet, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Okay, thank you very much for taking my call. Um, Dr. Anders, I, wish, I, I, I would like to know if you can elaborate or explain a little better to me. I'm trying hard to understand the scripture where uh, it says, Whatever is loosed in uh, on earth will be loosed in heaven. Sure, that sure I can do that. Thank you. Appreciate the question. So, in in uh, rabbinical thinking and Jewish rabbinical thinking, buying and loosing had to do with declaring an item to be clean or unclean, to be acceptable or unacceptable. And so, within a Christian context, it was it was transformed to a broader uh, application: admitting or excluding, um, declaring acceptable or unacceptable, um, and, uh, and it can also mean remitting uh, and imposing certain obligations. And so here are some of the ways that might function in a Catholic context. Uh, the most important, of course, is the, is the, um, the remission of sins in the confessional. 
when the priest says, absolve you of your sins. He can remit the, uh, your sin. He can absolve you of your sin. That's fantastic. He can also remit um, uh, certain temporal obligations. So, for example, uh, people who take inadvisable vows uh, that they should not have taken, bind themselves to some course of action um, inadvisably, can have those vows uh, absolved. They can have them remitted in the confessional. Um, another application of binding and loosing would be in the discipline of excommunication. That's one that Christ talks about in Matthew 18. Somebody is in an unrepentant, public, scandalous sin. The church can exclude them from fellowship. So another way that the church exercises the power of binding and loosing is over teaching. When the pope or council, for example, uh, defines dogmatically some truth of the Christian faith that all the faithful have to hold to, all these would be manifestations of the power of binding and loosing. Uh, quickly, we'll head to Patty. She is driving through the great state of Illinois, another first-time caller listening on WSFI Radio. Patty, very quickly, we've got a couple minutes left with Dr. Andrews. What's your question today? Okay, this is uh, a question about purgatory. Okay, the souls in purgatory cannot pray for themselves, but they can pray for others. Where in the Bible does it say they cannot pray for themselves uh, while in purgatory? Thank you for taking my question. Thank you. Well, it does not say in Scripture that the souls in purgatory cannot pray for themselves. And, of course, the souls in purgatory do pray, and uh, they're in the state of grace. They long to be united to God. They, they want the good of the Church. Uh, what they can't do is merit. They can't merit. That's different from not being able to pray. Um, praying is just asking God for things. Meriting is having some sort of claim on, on God's remuneration, if you will. Uh, when Jesus says, for example, if you pray in secret, your heavenly Father will see you in secret, and he will reward you. Something that God has, has already bound himself to reward, that's a merit. Souls in purgatory don't merit, but they can certainly pray. They can pray for anything they want to pray for, including themselves. And uh, and Chris is in San Antonio, Texas, another first-time caller, and wanted you to comment on John the Baptist as the best human ever. Um, right. Yeah, well, Jesus a, Jesus a, says that, that among those born of woman up until that point, there was none <laughs> greater than than John the Baptist. But that, but John the Baptist is regarded as the last of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, and Jesus says, but he's 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 not as great as the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven. So it it it, it definitely is limited to a particular dispensation. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer Charles Beery, our call screener Mr. Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams once again sitting in today for Tom Price, uh, thanking you for tuning in, uh, asking that question every day at this same time, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Uh, we would love to have you try to answer that question right here again next time on EWTN's Call to Communion. <laughs>